This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde asks, who really are the people in the real world that politicians speak so highly of? Rixamada discovers what it means to be a highly sensitive person and Charles Dance reflects on his big break and humble beginnings. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. First up, Marina Hyde notes that it's ever so convenient that at any given moment, the thing you care about is never actually the thing that politicians are willing to hit the headlines for. Read by Colleen Prendergast. What do people in the real world care about? It is a question as old as failing government itself. Yet, crucially, it is something that you, a person in the real world, are not cleared to answer yourself. Instead, it needs a politician to inform you what you care about, and, much more frequently and much more dismissively, what you don't care about. Once these permissible areas of giving a toss have been delineated, the politicians who told you what they were can get on with the long process of not fixing them, at the end of which they will tell you that those problems are fake, niche, latte-based, because out there in the world where you never go, people aren't talking about them. Let's see this in action. At the height of Boris Johnson's partygate furore, one of his cabinet ministers ruled witheringly that none of this stuff was a concern when you get out into the real world and you talk to real people. Another high-profile Tory soon joined in the real-worlding, instructing people, there are many things which matter much more in the real world. People so people were told, actually didn't care about the thing they could be heard appearing to care about on phone-ins, vox pops and across their social media. A few months on, we had Liz Truss's catastrophic mini-budget, which imploded when it made landfall with the real world, but this financial horror show too was not, in fact, something that people in that real world cared about. 
What the people I speak to, Truss explained amid the smoking ruins of her economic policies, and I've done a lot of travelling around the country over the past few months, what people care about is, in the town or city I live in, are there job opportunities? Are the new businesses investing? Does my high street look better than it used to look? Are roads being built? Can I get mobile phone signal? That's what people care about. What's that? Their mortgages. Oh, you rarefied old elitist you. No one cared about their mortgages. Real world people were absolutely mystified and outraged by Truss's subsequent ejection from Downing Street. This is because whenever a politician does something bad, real people in the real world are completely relaxed and simply want them to be getting on with something different. The publication of the Sue Gray report offered the perfect occasion for Johnson to trumpet Brexit freedoms. This is what I think people want us to focus on, he judged. I want to say to the people of this country, I know what the issue is. Yes, it is whether this government can be trusted to deliver. Yes, that was the issue. Confusingly, while the publication of the Sue Gray report was an opportunity to talk about the approved real-world subject of Brexit, last weekend's tailback crisis at the Port of Dover was not. The Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, denied the hours-long queues were even remotely connected with Brexit and instead blamed them partially on the weather. Real-world people want the government to piss down their back and tell them it's raining. Expect much more of this. A month out from the local elections, we have reached the point in the bankruptcy of ideas cycle in which party leaders make their pitch to the electorate by informing them what they do and don't care about. This week is Crime Week, in which the Tories have launched a number of policies to crack down on crime because, can I shock you, you should know that people care about crime. On Monday, the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, was revealing to people that people care about grooming gangs. It's unclear quite how it has taken this long for the party that's been in power for the past 13 years to realise that people do care about grooming gangs, but I expect to learn imminently that people won't care about that delay or the fact that child sexual abuse is far, far bigger than just grooming gangs. People will only care that no political correctness stops a crackdown on this bit of the problem now, even if any number of things presumably stopped politicians cracking down on the problem before. For his part, the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, was talking about women and trans issues by explaining across the airwaves that almost nobody is talking about trans issues. I do sometimes just wonder why on earth we spend so much of our time discussing something which isn't a feature of the dinner table or the kitchen table or the cafe table or the bar. Naming a full three types of tableware, Starmer seeks to convey an easy familiarity with ordinary people's real-world equipment, the sort of authentic furniture around which food or even drink may be taken by real people. Where he comes from, the real world, tables have four legs and a sort of flat bit on top. And I think that's what real people from Workington Man to Stevenage Woman want to talk about.
Impressively, even sewage was deemed a non-real-world issue for a long time, despite people being able to watch the stuff literally being sprayed into the water. Nearly 18 months ago, the government voted, on the eve of its own international eco-summit, to reject an attempt by the Lords to crack down on the discharge of sewage into rivers and waterways. As one Conservative MP put it, it is necessary to be realistic. We must live in a new reality, however, as on Tuesday, Therese Coffey announced a plan to threaten water companies dumping sewage with unlimited fines. As for the success of this favoured political tactic of the age, would you say that overall it is working? Far be it for me to speak for all real people, but as a single real person, I have to say my overall impression is that the only people who don't actually live in the real world are the politicians who deploy the device. Instead of listening with any kind of humility after the rolling bin fire of the past several years, they seem to have adopted a tactic of telling people what they do and don't want. Everywhere you look, there is a politician coming off like some terrible amateur hypnotist waving their hand slightly too close to your face and saying, and you don't care about any of this. People seem more sceptical than ever of their ability to fix anything much. On the one hand, I guess these politicians are trying something really quite radical, an entirely new type of populism which involves constantly citing what the people really want at the same time as telling said people that they don't want the things they want. On the other hand, it is, how to put this, not immediately obvious how this approach is going to amount to giving the people what they want, but, of course, as they never stop implying, they know best. That was What Do You, A Real Person in the Real World Want? Best Be Quiet and Let the Politicians Tell You by Marina Hyde Read by Colleen Prendergast Next Do emotions overwhelm you? According to a new book, it may be that you are a highly sensitive person just like the singer Lord and actresses Nicole Kidman and Miranda Hart Here, Rick Samada wonders if he qualifies as one too Read by Rick Samada. Do strangers sit next to you on the bus and share their secrets? Does art make you cry? Do you feel other people's feelings? On the other hand, are you prone to being overwhelmed by crowds, bright lights or strong perfume? Bad news? Or maybe good? You could be an HSP a highly sensitive person. The emerging category affects between 15 and 30% of the population, which has some researchers calling it the missing personality type. When I encountered the concept on an Instagram post, I felt both irritated and seen. The checklist was a mirror. I am paralysed by overthinking, beset by self-doubt, a feelings magnet, sometimes absurdly so. I once found a chewed-up corn cob on the street, took it home and drew a smile on it. Corny sat on my desk for years, and whenever I looked at his brave little face, the face I had drawn, I was moved to tears. When I broke up with my girlfriend, we both cried buckets over custody. I'm thinking she was one too. 
you don't need a special nose to detect something in the air. The HSP hashtag has more than 498 million views on TikTok, while comedian Miranda Hart tweeted, When I found out I was HSP, it truly changed and saved my life. Lord Nicole Kidman and Alanis Morissette have publicly identified as such. Unsurprisingly, Kanye West too. Quiet people may be sensitive, but sensitive people aren't quiet anymore. After mentioning once that I'm writing about this, my inbox is flooded with strangers sharing their experience. Ironically, it's quite overwhelming. Some of it makes me laugh. One correspondent claims their main challenge is every aspect of life, it's all too much. Maria, meanwhile, feels other people's feelings to the point it makes her sad. But her main problem is noises. Noises. Is it possible you just have feelings and loud noises are annoying, I reply. Maybe I'm less empathic than I think. People identify to varying degrees, and for some, it's simply the most available term. I didn't know it was a thing. Creative people are just more porous. HSP sounds better, muses best-selling author Jojo Moyes. It's helpful not to feel like a weirdo because I worry about the last baked bean left on my plate. How can we understand what's happening inside an HSP? They'll tell you. That's a joke. Here's some theory. The term was coined in 1996 by psychologist Elaine Aron, who argued that sensitive brains are uniquely wired to process their environment at a deep level. Her theory's most striking claim is that physical and emotional sensitivity are one and the same. An intricate attention to body language heightens empathy. Responsiveness to subtle physical cues creates rich sensations in HSPs, but can also overwhelm. Scratchy clothes, smells, background talk. Unable to filter the noise, they soak up every drop. Overstimulation is a sensitive's bete noir. I'm wondering if I qualify. I do react strongly to caffeine and alcohol, so I rarely drink either. I'm often cold. Some noises make me lose my mind. I swear at motorcyclists whom I suspect have modified their exhaust pipes to amplify their revs, and I harbour dark fantasies about the feral dogs my neighbours keep in the yard and who bark through the night. But perhaps I react strongly to caffeine and alcohol because I don't drink them much. For the other example, I could be responding as much to perceived selfishness as noise itself. Plus, it is often cold. HSP? TBC. A more obvious candidate is my best friend, Victoria. Victoria wells up if asked to picture the internal organs of her cat, so I sometimes do this for a bit of fun. More seriously, I've seen her having a panic attack caused by balmy weather. Heat, cold, hunger or pain. I have a delicate equilibrium which is easy to upset, she says. She feels emotions through her whole body, which can leave her nauseous, and she worries that she lacks resilience. Even overlapping conversations at a dinner party are a problem. I have felt judged by friends and partners not understanding my reactions or why I have to exit a situation. Sensitivity has a PR problem. We're accustomed to seeing its downsides, says Jen Graneman, one of the writers of a new book on the subject. Sensitive. The Power of a Thoughtful Mind in an Overwhelming World. Co-authored with Andre Solo, 
They're also found as a sensitive refuge, described as the world's largest network of HSPs. Sensitive is synonymous with oversensitive, explains Granerman, and HSPs are often told they should be less sensitive. Yet it's impossible to change the reactivity of one's nervous system. It's like trying to be less tall. Men are particularly vulnerable to the toughness myth, the toxic social message that emotion is weakness, says Solo. They both identify as HSP now, but as a younger man, Solo himself was guarded against feminine concepts, such as empathy or compassion. I knew that I read people well, so that's how I would say it. You reskin it in different language. You're listening to The Missing Personality Type Could You Be a Highly Sensitive Person? by Rick Samada. Read by Rick Samada. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to Weekend. Let's rejoin Rick Samada discussing what it means to be a highly sensitive person. In the workplace, HSPs are often the highest performers, yet the first to burn out. They can struggle in relationships as they lean towards people-pleasing. When you notice all the little hurts that happen with other people, how can you not, points out Granerman. But the story is not a pessimistic one, she insists. The ability to connect is of huge value, and higher sensitivity is linked with creativity, brilliance, and higher IQ. The trait is shared by pioneers across science, business, and the arts. Anyone who notices details others don't makes connections they can't. I knew an HSP painter who saw 20 different shades of blue on a wall where others saw just one, she says. Graneman and Solo's rousing book echoes Hannah Jane Walker's book, which came out earlier this year, also called Sensitive. Their message harks back to Elaine N. Aaron, author of The Highly Sensitive Person, The Highly Sensitive Parent, etc., whose writing is a clarion call for self-doubters. By accepting their needs, HSPs unlock buried treasure. Researchers use the metaphor of dandelions versus orchids. Though less hardy, Orchids are exquisite. Graneman and Solo's first chapter sums it up. You're not broken or wrong because you're sensitive. The truth is, you have a superpower. I hear this exact metaphor used in the pub by someone who hasn't read the books. Other people I know are also well aware of their powers. We're called hispies in the community, Ella informs me. Ella has a diverse social circle and always seems to be on a boat surrounded by male models, even though she works in publishing. You could have this lifestyle if you were an empath like me, she writes. I tell her I am an empath and her remark has deeply wounded me. I'm an empath and your remark has deeply wounded me, she replies. Touché. In 2012, Susan Cain's groundbreaking book Quiet swung a spotlight onto the hidden advantages of introversion. The ground today is different. A related, niche research term can become a mainstream buzzword. There is less shame attached to being sensitive. In some circles, quite the opposite. Being neither condition nor disorder, HSP is mostly self-reported. 
Labels are a double-edged sword, says Solo, who uses HSP and Sensitive interchangeably. If someone puts a label on you, it's painful. If you choose one yourself, it's empowering. I find myself wondering if this is always true. In a culture of individualism, questioning the merit of self-identification is heresy. But let's get nuts. Who wouldn't want to be HSP, says Fergus Kane, clinical psychologist at the Maudsley, when I throw him the hot potato. It's an almost entirely positive set of attributes. One possible downside, he says, might be missing a diagnosis in another area. Overstimulation overlaps with conditions such as ADHD and autism. Female autism in particular is little understood. Sensitivity researchers maintain there are key differences. And a diagnosis might lead to alternative interventions, from meditation to medication. There is a non-clinical value to self-identification, Kane adds, understanding how we interact with the world and having compassion for ourselves. Since we're in the heresies game, let's try the biggest one. Is HSP real? It's unclear whether highly sensitive people warrant their own category. In scientific language, whether the difference is dimensional or taxonomic, says Kane, whose PhD is in neuroimaging. There are still few research groups dedicated to this, and a brain study often taken as definitive proof is too limited to generalise its results. This doesn't mean HSP isn't real. All theories look for definitive, areas of the brain lighting up proof, one that makes a good picture in the media. But we can't really do that with anything, to be honest, despite spending billions of pounds on it. What is incontrovertible is that the term speaks to people. I hear from a few parents of sensitive children who struggle with particular fabrics touching their skin or are distressed by playground hubbub. These parents find the term useful as a halfway house between a more serious diagnosis and being told your child is difficult. They don't care about longitudinal studies or sample sizes. They only want to understand their children and advocate for them. Does the toughness myth hold anymore? In February, The Telegraph revealed that Penguin had employed sensitivity readers to remove offensive words from Roald Dahl books, sparking a huge backlash. Some feel sensitive people have been granted an outsize amount of influence. For Granerman, this is a misperception she often comes up against. A sensitive person may be on board with cancel culture or against it. It's not about crying easily or getting offended. Yet there is a generational skew to the wave of interest in HSP. Niche therapeutic terms are ways that Gen Z and younger millennials conceive themselves. Did you hear my covert narcissism I disguise as altruism? Taylor Swift sings on Antihero, a line which could come from Robert Wilder or Anna Freud. Infant attachment theorist John Bowlby would be confused to hear his work is big on dating app Bumble. In the first season of HBO's White Lotus, Sydney Sweeney's character Olivia upbraids her mother for opening doors without knocking, citing her best friend Paula's HSP. Who's her physician, Lena Dunham? Shoots back her mother. A carousel of conditions revolves online. Via slogans from self-appointed insta-therapists, it's become common to claim PTSD or diagnose people in our lives as narcissists or psychopaths, very rare personality disorders. Emotion reigns supreme, albeit rendered in clinical language. 
I think this explains my initial flash of irritation. A ubiquitous human trait like sensitivity, just as with anxiety before it, may now enter an arms race for validation. I don't mean to attack anyone's suffering, rather to protect against the erosion of its meaning. As the saying goes, the snowflake does not realise it is part of the avalanche. Labels can limit, too. We might use them as a reason to stay fixed in old patterns, or not try to overcome inevitable hurdles. Yet they can tell us something. For instance, is there any difference between describing yourself as a highly sensitive person or an HSP? I think so. I think they reveal how much we wish our subjective selves to be grounded in language, neuroscience, consensus. How much we wish to be knowable, even to ourselves. But I believe we are larger than that frame. Calling myself HSP, HPV or HSBC won't stop me walking around feeling like an open wound some days. It won't stop people getting in touch to say how much they disagree with me, or their words being an anvil in my heart for years. And it definitely won't stop strangers on the bus telling you about their divorce. If it's any consolation, I feel your pain. That was The Missing Personality Type Could You Be a Highly Sensitive Person? by Rick Samada Read by Rick Samada Finally, he often plays the quintessential British hero but Charles Dance also makes a fine villain. He sat down with Zoe Williams to discuss his father's death, his big break and leaving his stammer behind. Read by Mark Elstob I meet Charles Dance in a cute French bistro on Islington Green, North London. He is 76 and has one of those faces that holds its adamantine shape, although its seriousness is offset by his easy, expansive manner, the relaxed confidence and ready laugh of a person who is doing this fantastic job that I've been all over the world with. I get paid pretty well. Something has to be really bad for me to turn it down, otherwise I keep on doing it. The restaurant staff love him. The waiter tells me afterwards that he was the second Lannister in that day. Dance played the family's patriarch in Game of Thrones. Naturally, I ask who the other one was. I couldn't possibly tell you. Dance is always readier to talk about other people, their thoughts, interests, careers. There was a risk for a while that I would come away knowing less about him than about Paul Scott, the author of The Jewel in the Crown in which Dance starred and broke into the mainstream, or Terry Hands, the director of the Royal Shakespeare Company in its golden years 1966 to 1991, or Ben Kingsley. But I pulled it back from the brink, reader. People think I'm aristocratic because of the way my face is put together, but I'm not, he says. My mother was a servant at the age of thirteen, came from Bethnal Green. The British class system what we wanted to look like, who was allowed to do what, how this has changed in the past fifty years, is stamped all the way through Dance's career. While he embodies the ruling class physically, he can also adopt its manners. Urbane, lordly, a little bored. Even when he is nothing like the main character in, say, Gosford Park, The Crown or Game of Thrones, he is often what you remember about the atmosphere of the piece. 
We are here to talk about the Paramount Plus series Rabbit Hole, starring Kiefer Sutherland, which is a bit of a departure for dance. It's the first time in a while you will have seen him threatening to cut off anyone's fingers. He has seen the first two episodes. I tell him the others are great, that I really enjoyed it. Would you tell me if you didn't? Not at the beginning of the interview, no. Maybe at the end. He looks at me sceptically before conceding that he agrees. It's not passive viewing. You can't slump back with a bowl of crisps and a beer. You have to lean forward. Rabbit Hole is a political thriller with a touch of magic realism. A meaty subject, the acquisition of personal data for nefarious political purposes, served with elegant lightness. He has quite an old-school modesty. Sure, it's a good show, Kiefer's a joy, but then everything's good now. With the advent of streaming, the appetite for product is extraordinary. I'm surprised there's not more crap out there, so much as being made. But it seems to me that the standard of most things now is phenomenal. He hairs off to say how much he liked the money-laundering drama Ozark, the Western Godless, also LBC phone-ins. He is an enthusiast. Dance was born in Worcestershire, where he went to primary school, when it was a primary school, not a prep school, and loved being in school plays. His father died when he was three and a half, and he has hardly any memory of him, but his mother was delighted when he became an actor because his dad used to do musical recitations. Years later, I was given a medal that he'd got for elocution at some festival in Wales. My mother used to speak very fondly of him. It must have been awful for my poor stepfather, harping on about him all the time. His journey to professional acting wasn't seamless. He went to a technical grammar school, very science-based. It was schooling boys to go into the dockyard in Plymouth and work on ships, he says. I left there with a sum total of two O-levels, English and art. I knew nothing about Shakespeare. As a teenager, he developed a stammer and couldn't have gone on stage even if his school had entertained such frippery. He couldn't even talk to girls. It's horrible, and I could never be seen to be a stammerer. I'd have to make up the most complicated sentences to get round the words I couldn't manage. When it came to girlfriend time, it was hell. All the things I wanted to say, I couldn't say. You could see their eyes glazing over during my terribly long sentences. He went to art school in Leicester without much enthusiasm. He ended up working on a building site to pay for acting lessons from two old dudes in Devon called Leonard and Martin, who traded their thoughts on Mark Antony for pints of mild. The relationship between wise old men and young men who were willing to learn is a wonderful thing. I was very, very lucky that I knew those two. His first acting job was touring a play called It's a Two-Foot-Six-Inches-Above-The-Ground World. The title alludes to the height of the average person's genitalia from the ground, he says, as if this will make sense of things. It was a hard scrabble to get into the RSC, in other words. I could have sobbed, he says. I was overjoyed. I didn't come from money. I didn't come from a theatrical family. He was there for five years from 1975. Trevor Nunn and Hans were joint artistic directors. You were either a Terry actor or a Trevor actor. This was heavily class-coded. Trevor's were posh and Terry's were not. Dance was a Terry actor and went everywhere, including Europe and the U.S. 
He had married the sculptor Joanna Haythorne in 1970, and they had had a son, Oliver, in 1974, and a daughter, Becky, in 1980. When theatre goes well, he says, it's fantastic, you think, I'm right there. I've only ever felt like that about three times. Well, that's wonderful. Three times in his whole life? Yeah. It's often nearly there. The role that made him a household name was Sergeant Guy Perrin in The Jewel in the Crown. It's hard to overstate how much attention there was on this drama in 1984. Said during the last days of the British Raj in India, it was lavish, epic, and launched a number of careers, including those of Art Malik, Tim Piggott Smith, and Geraldine James. There just wasn't that much TV back then. My agent said you can't possibly do that, it's too grand for you. I think I had to read almost every scene to convince them, and thank God I did. But I didn't appear until the last four hours, and I thought if this is a turkey, people will have switched off before they get to me. As well as introducing dance to non-theatre-goers, the role transformed him into the quintessential British hero, although he denies that such a transformation took place. I've never felt I arrived as a leading man. I've never fronted anything. No, wait, there was a series called First Born. I suppose I was the leading man in that. He played a scientist who creates a human-gorilla hybrid. The problem is I just like working, so I'm perhaps not as choosy as I could have been, he says. Well, up to a point. But didn't he turn down the chance to play James Bond? This was in the mid-eighties after Roger Moore had stepped down. No, of course I didn't turn down James Bond. What happened was my agent called and said, I urge you not to do it. Just think how you'll feel if you don't get it. It will kill your career stone dead. She was probably right. If I'd got it, I would have probably fucked it up. So, okay, he didn't turn down Bond. He just didn't audition. He doesn't turn down work unless it's absolute garbage, he says. Dance was a staple by the late eighties. Some years, such as 1987, there are three films you remember, and dance was in all of them. White Mischief, Good Morning Babylon, Hidden City. He prefers filming to theatre. I like that community. It's like the circus coming to town. Everybody gets to know each other very, very quickly. It's just a great feeling. The smell of a film set. We used to talk about the smell of the grease paint, but the smell of a film set. There's nothing like it. He made a foray into writing and directing with 2004's Ladies in Lavender, starring Judy Dench and Maggie Smith. It was an unusual film, and much talked about partly because it was quite a bold proposition, a film full of old ladies. That was one of the few films that gave the UK Film Council a return on its investment, though I say it myself, he says. It was charming. It didn't move mountains cinematically, it was just a sweet little film about two old ladies living in Cornwall. Fortunately, I had Judy Dench and Maggie Smith. I could have shot the telephone directory. By the time Game of Thrones came along in 2011, a new demographic that had never heard of the jewel in the crown was ready to be introduced to dance. I had no idea where it was going to go, he says. None of us had any idea that it was going to be the most successful television series ever made, especially as the pilot wasn't great. If it had been made by the BBC, they would have pulled the plug, but Sky and HBO nursed it, and we began to be aware that we were dealing with a pretty class act. 
I still had no idea that it would become this charming monster. Divorced since 2004, by this time he was in a relationship with the artist Eleanor Borman. They had a daughter, Rose, in 2012, and separated the same year. I don't see much of Rose, unfortunately, but that's just the way it is, he says. Dance has been with the film producer Alessandra Massi since they met on the set of The Book of Vision in 2018. On the day we meet, she is shooting in Italy. She is a really great producer, he says. She has a bike and goes everywhere on it. Even given his tendency to extol people's virtues, it is sweet how many random things he finds delightful about his girlfriend. Is he ever going to work less? He has done six or seven jobs, he says, in the past two years. It's a schedule not dissimilar to his heyday after the jewel in the crown. The man who has been counting his blessings since long before gratitude journaling was invented waves this off. I'm lucky enough to do a job that I love, he says. There are many, many people who do jobs to put food on the table and pay the bills, and there is always a bit of me that feels guilty when I turn down work. I think, who am I to say no? That was People Think I'm an Aristocrat. Charles Dance on Class, Game of Thrones and Avoiding James Bond by Zoe Williams. Read by Mark Elstob. Before you go, we wanted to tell you about our free documentaries newsletter, perfect for film and culture lovers. Guardian Documentaries tells contemporary stories that reveal the changing world we live in, and newsletter subscribers are the first to know about the latest thought-provoking films. Plus subscribers get behind-the-scenes glimpses into the award-winning films and connect with the independent filmmakers through exclusive interviews and Q&As. There is a link to where you can sign up to the newsletter in today's episode description on the Guardian website. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Colleen Prendergast, Rick Samada and Mark Elstob and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Jack Claremont. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, 
you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.